Hi, I'm Mona Lewis, the sports director of WSU, and I want to personally welcome you to X's and Opinions. Sit back and listen as some of WSU's sportscasters break down some of the major headlines over the past week of professional sports. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WSU Sports for more content. And rate this podcast and subscribe if you enjoy. Now, let's get started, shall we? Hello, and welcome back to this week's brand new episode of X's and Opinions brought to you by WSOU Sports. I am your host, John Height, and joining me today are my analysts, Joel Moran and Michael Leniart. Guys, how are we doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I feel great. James Harden got traded to the Nets, something I wondered all along. It was my dream scenario. I stayed up a lot of nights thinking about what it looked like and I finally got it. My dream came true. Well, yeah, I'm but- doing pretty good. This is my first time on WSAU, so I'm super excited to work with you guys. Um, been watching the NFL playoffs. I'm a little upset that I'm missing the end of the Browns-Chiefs game now, but I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, NFC game tonight between uh, the Bucks and Saints. Well, lucky for you guys, we'll be talking about both of those things today in our episode. So we have a lot of great stuff to break down and just so many sports. So let's just get right into it. Starting in the NBA and Joel's James Harden storyline, we've had a lot of great news, but the biggest trade in the past few years we have to agree on is the massive 14 blockbuster deal that sent former MVP James Harden to the Brooklyn Nets. Before I ask you guys your opinions, here are the details. The Nets received Harden and a second round pick via the Cavs. The Cavs received Jared Allen and Torian Prince. The Pacers received Karis LeVert and a second round pick via Houston. And lastly, the Rockets received Victor Oladipo, Dante Exum, Rodion's Karuks, and three first-round picks and four first-round pick swaps from the Nets. So starting with you, Joel, who are your winners and losers from this deal? Winners are James Harden and the Brooklyn Nets. Whenever you can acquire a top three player in the NBA, you won, especially when Kevin Durant and Kyrie, they wanted to play with James Harden all along. This is going to work. I don't know why anybody is questioning that it's going to work. This is basically the OKC team, except KD and Harden are in their prime, and you swap Westbrook for Kyrie. This is what this is. The losers for this trade, I'd have to say, after recent news broke out, I think it's the Indiana Pacers. Karis LeVert, he's injured. He might have a tumor in his knee. They they traded Oladipo for a second-round pick and a player who's injured. We don't know what he's going to be. We don't know. They got finessed in this trade so far. We have to see what happens with Karis LeVert. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is a huge win for the Brooklyn Nets for James Harden. You add you add Harden to the mix with Kyrie and KD, and they're instantly the favorite in the, in the Eastern Conference. And a lot of people think they could win the whole thing. But I also think that, um, like, for the Rockets, it was definitely a good trade because James Harden obviously didn't want to stay in Houston. He wanted to get out. And they got a pretty, in my opinion, they got a pretty solid return with the four first-round picks in Victor Oladipo. I think um, the Rockets like got the best they could get for trading away James Harden. So we have to agree that adding James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving, the new big, big three in the NBA, is going to turn heads all season long. And last night we saw it in his first game. The Nets took down the Magic 122-115, to 115, and Harden became the first NBA player to record a 30-point triple-double in a new team debut. Durant also dropped 42 points in the victory. And along with the complex Kyrie Irving, can the Nets bring home a title this season? What's your guys' thoughts on this? Guaranteed they're going to win the championship this year. If it's not this year, it's going to be next year. The same thing happened with the Miami Heat when they first formed. Everybody was worried about the bench. This Nets bench is not bad. You still have Landry Shaman, who was a starter last year for 30 games. You have Bruce Brown. You have Jeff Green. 
who can be a small ball five center, and you have Dinwiddie if he's healthy. This bench this year was good, but next season, people are going to be dying to play with this team, with Kevin Durant, Kyrie, and James Harden, and they're going to get a lot of great free agents for a minimum price. So they're going to win a championship, no doubt about it. I'm not worried about Kyrie. I, you might do a follow-up question about that, but I'm really not worried about Kyrie at all. Yeah, I think um, going back to the winners and losers for this, for the trade, I think if the net, obviously for Brooklyn, it's championship or bust in the next couple of years. Like if they don't get a title out of this group within the next two to three years, then I would consider this trade a failure. And I think, I think this year they get to the finals and they lose it. I still like the Lakers in like a seven game series. I just think LeBron and AD are playing at such a high level. I think the Lakers have a little bit more depth, but I think Brooklyn's definitely going to win a title if not this year, the next year. Um, I agree with both of the points you guys made. Um, it's really the next two years are going to be crucial. And if the Nets do not win a championship somehow, I think this would be obviously a, a, a huge mistake, a huge loss. And you got to go back to the 2013 Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett deal. And I compare this to that, just the amount of value that they gave up for, you know, older veteran players, obviously those two and Jason Terry were older than James Harden. You really can't compare them. Know, skill-wise, like at this point in James Harden's career. But they've lost a good amount of their future in that deal. You know, they've lost Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who went on to star with the Celtics. So right now, it's a must-win. And like you said, Michael, I personally think it's going to be still hard to take down LeBron and Anthony Davis, because as long as you have those two guys healthy, and we've seen LeBron in the past versus, you know, super teams and still have success against them, and the Lakers just have a loaded team, you know, just across the board, offensive and defensively, off the bench, they got players like Montrez Harrell, you know, Marcus Saul, Dennis Schroeder. Their, their bench is obviously going to outplay the Nets bench. And in a seven-game series, which hopefully will be the NBA championship, it'll be the Nets and the Lakers. you got to hope that Kyrie, Harden, and Durant average 30 a game in every single game of the series. Otherwise, they're not going to, I think, have a chance to take down the Lakers. But, again, the last part of this equation is, like Joel just mentioned, Kyrie Irving. So whether it's been causing trouble by not showing up for media conferences, you know, missing multiple games, there's really a new story every day. So he's definitely an enigma to say the least. And Stephen A even said earlier on first take before the James Harden deal that he should even retire, which I think is kind of a bold take, but I want to hear your guys' opinion. If you're the Nets and you have now these three superstars on board and you have to win a title in the next two years, how are you going to handle Kyrie Irving? I don't think the Kyrie Irving dilemma is that serious. I think Stephen A. Smith was, out of line for saying Kyrie should retire. Uh, Kyrie, if anything, this whole time, he's been trying to fight social injustice. And most of his acting out has been because he's been trying to do something even more. So for me, I feel like the only way the Nets move on from Kyrie is if they feel like they can win with Harden and KD only, and they want to surround those two with more pieces and more depth. But outside of that, I'm not worried about Kyrie's off-the-court antics. He's close friends with Kevin Durant. He's close with James Harden. They're always going to be in constant communication. So I'm not worried about it at all. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think if um if the Kyrie Irving situation was uh, such a big deal, you'd see, like, I think the Nets, like, Durant and Harden, like, Harden wouldn't want to go there. They would be, like, I think they know that Kyrie's going to come back, whether it's in the next few weeks or so it should be, I think, the next couple of weeks and everything's going to be fine. He's going to work 
they're going to like work things out. But yeah, going back to the uh, Stephen A comment, I thought that was out of line too. Obviously, Kyrie Irving's not going to retire. He's still got a lot of basketball left. And I mean, he's done a lot of good things. I saw on Twitter the other day, like all the money he's like donated to different organize- organizations and stuff like that. I think everyone needs to give Kyrie like a little bit of a break. But at the same time, everyone else in the NBA is going out there doing their job. So I think he's got to come back soon. Should come back soon. Mm-hmm. I agree with both of you guys again. Um, but besides just the off the court issues, we, we see now the three of them will be in a starting lineup together, obviously going into the playoffs and going forward. And again, there's always the, you hear the stigma. There's only one basketball and how's it going to work just offensively and even defensively where you have three just really gifted, you know, prolific scorers of our time. And Kevin Durant, you could argue is the greatest scorer in the league right now. You can make an argument for that. And even James Harden, and again, Kyrie Irving. So just another quick follow-up question. Can you imagine all three of them working together offensively and not really having any problems? Or do you see it as like a feeling out process? Because even Harden last night, he hadn't even practiced with the Nets. And he already just jumped right in. And he probably met half his teammates that night, uh, last night against the Orlando Magic and then scored a triple-double. So how do you think it's going to work offensively between those three? It's going to work out just fine. I've seen this already in OKC. Kevin Durant and Harden, their team chemistry is there. They play effortlessly together. You've seen it against the Orlando Magic. There's a false narrative out there that, that James Harden can't play off the ball. He can play off the ball. But also, what's also a false narrative is that he's not a facilitator. He's not a willing passer because people think he's a jock because he scores so much. James Harden is a top five passer in the NBA right now. And if he wanted to, he can be a great point guard. He did that one year in Houston where he averaged 11 assists per game. This team is going to be James Harden, that point guard, Kevin Durant, obviously doing what he does, score the ball, and Kyrie Irving, he's just going to score the ball as well. I think Kyrie's going to embrace that role because Kyrie is not a natural passer. He's not a natural floor general point guard. James Harden is. So Kyrie and Durant are going to be the main scorers of this team, and James Harden is going to take that backseat role, get everybody involved, but when you need him to take over, he's going to take over. Yeah, yeah, that was well said. I think it's definitely going to take a little bit of time, especially when Kyrie gets back, having all three on the court at the same time. But they've all played with superstars before. James Harden just played with Russell Westbrook for a number of years. Obviously, they played together with KD in Oklahoma City. And KD was on the Warriors with all with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. So they all know how to share the ball. And I don't think it's going to be too big of a problem, but it'll, there'll definitely be some nights one guy, you know, takes a step back, as you said, for Harden, more of a floor general and passer. And it's Katie and Kyrie scoring 30 and 30 and Harden maybe, um, you know, spreading the ball out more, Kyrie spreading the ball out more and it's Harden scoring 30 and Katie. But it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think by the playoffs, they'll be in full swing, ready to go. Uh, Like you guys said, I think it'll definitely be growing pains, but, I, Joel, you brought up a good point because you kind of think about it. And originally going into this season, when we thought about Kyrie and KD, Kyrie was going to be the point guard and KD was going to be the scorer before we even knew about James Harden. But people start have to realize that James Harden is going to be the facilitator of this team. And Kyrie Irving is best used as like, a, like just a prolific scorer. And we saw that with the problems with the Celtics. He just he didn't mesh with them and just the other teams in the past. So only time can tell to see when exactly they're going to start clicking once Kyrie comes back, but I'm sure it'll be sooner rather than later and before playoff time. So just uh, shifting gears into the last topic from the NBA, 
Um, just based off these breaking moves, now the East and the Western Conference, there's just a lot of new situational storylines going on. And I just want you guys to tell me a team that you have your eye on for the rest of the season. This could be a contender. It could be a sleeper. Just one that you think every viewer should be looking at for the rest of the season. That team to me is not a team that is going to compete for the championship. Not a team that they might not even make the playoffs. This team is the Toronto Raptors. They have, they've been on a really slow start to the season. Everybody can agree on that. And because of that, they've been written off. Some people have them taken for Cade Cunningham. But in reality, they just won two games in a row. They're four and eight, and five of their losses have been less than seven points. So they have been in mostly all of these games, and their schedule has been really tough to start. Because of that, I think the Raptors are going to start going on a roll, and people have to watch out for Toronto maybe getting one of, like, the fifth or fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. And also, don't sleep on Chris Boucher. He's having a terrific season going to be a candidate for most improved player most definitely by the end of the year yeah my team uh all very similar like they're not I don't think they're they're going to be in the playoffs but they're not going to be they're not going to get make it out of the east and compete for a championship but the 76ers it was um just like last week or a couple days ago when it there's some late rumors that they were trying to almost get James Harden but obviously they didn't and they have Daryl Morey who is the uh, old Rockets GM, but Joel Embiid's been playing a terrific, is having an incredible year, but Ben Simmons still like inconsistent with his shooting. He does not take outside shots. And it's been like the same thing every year for Philadelphia the past like four or five years. They just can't really do anything in the postseason. So is this year, you know, they can make a run. I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, those are two excellent choices. And starting with you, Joel. Again, I think going into this season, the Raptors kind of got a bad rap just because, you know, they're not playing in their Toronto or, you know, area. They're playing, you know, in, in Florida. And it's got to be difficult, you know, every year playing in your home arena and for an entire season not being able, again, fans not even allowed anyway, but not even playing in your own country, you know, obviously. Um, but I think that's definitely a team to look out for. A lot of interesting pieces there. He brought up Chris Boucher. Um, every night, like on Instagram, I literally see a block that's like always featured on like house of highlights or, or, or whatever. And so they just have a lot of good pieces to that team and the 76ers, Michael, they're another team, you know, Joel Embiid is a possible, you know, MVP candidate. I really like, uh, Tyrese Maxey, his play so far in that one game where the entire team was out against the nuggets, you know, he had that huge 30 plus scoring night, and, you know, Ben Simmons, you know, still is an offensive threat, even though he still can't consistently shoot threes. So I think those are two solid teams. My pick is a team that will definitely not win the championship this year, but will definitely be a playoff team, which is the Dallas Mavericks. And I'm only saying this not just because of the Luka Doncic hype train and, again, another MVP contender, but the return of Chris Abbs Porzingis and, you know, the last couple of years, even in the bubble, just watching the two of them play together, it's just so fun to watch. And, you know, Porzingis came back on January 13th. He scored 16 and 15 points in his first two games. And the Mavericks are currently playing the Bulls right now and losing, which is kind of hurting my point a little bit. But Luca's stat line, he's got 34 points, 16 rebounds and 15 assists, you know, in the fourth quarter. Like he just puts up out of this world numbers. And I just think overall that team is just an exciting team to watch. And regardless if they make a finals run somehow, if they can, you know, topple the Titans of the West and the Anthony Davis and LeBron, the Lakers or the Clippers or any of those teams, the Mavericks are still going to be an exciting team to watch. But definitely three great teams to look out for for the rest of the season. 
So now it's time to switch it up and let's change gears to the NFL. And right now we're in one of the best weekends of all football, the divisional round. And on Saturday, we started off with the two favorites, the Packers and Bills, advancing to their respective conference championships. We'll start with you, Michael. What were some of your takeaways from the Packers' offensive explosion against the Rams? Because there were certainly some, and just seeing Aaron Rodgers yeah. light it up once again. Yeah, uh, Devontae Adams had a big game. And I think, I mean, for Aaron Rodgers, as incredible of a quarterback he's been in his career, this is kind of a huge statement here because he's only got one Super Bowl win to his name. And I mean, he's chasing it this year. They're obviously they got the big win yesterday against Los Angeles, and it's I mean it's going to set up for a huge matchup next weekend. Where whether it's he's taking on uh, Tom Brady or Drew Brees, but I think the Packers either way are probably going to be the favorite to uh, make the Super Bowl in the NFC. And not many Toms is a team that had a bye week against a team that was a seven seed, a huge win, but I felt like it was this time around because the Rams matched up well with Green Bay. And I think everybody had that feeling about Green Bay that they might not be as good as we think they are. For me, I think it all started with the offensive line. Aaron Donald didn't get any pressure, mostly because he was injured the entire game. He shouldn't even have been playing. I felt like that played a major role People are going to talk about Devontae Adams, Aaron Jones, and deservedly so. But I felt like the hero of this game and somebody who's going to get looked over is Adam Lazard. On every single third down, when you needed Adam Lazard, he was there. He was making big plays. Devontae Adams, yes, he had nine receptions, but he he only had about 20 yards on Jalen Ramsey. And one the touchdown he got wasn't even on Jalen Ramsey. I don't think it was his fault at all. Adam Lazard came up huge on every single third down situation that the Packers needed, and they kept drives alive. And that's what that's the story of the game. The Packers offense kept rolling. The Rams couldn't stop them. And the Rams, we know they were they are an inconsistent offense, but I think this game wasn't even on the Rams offense. It was about that defense that's so elite, not living up to expectations. Yeah. Uh, uh, good points by uh, both you guys. And like you just said, Joel, with the Rams defense being like maybe the cause of the loss uh, yesterday. Coming into the game, the Rams led the NFL in fewest yards and points allowed. They were just first in passing defense and second in sacks. And yesterday they didn't tally a single sack on Rodgers and only hit him once. And again, that probably wasn't part because of Aaron Donald not being at full, you know, full capacity. But just overall, we saw, the, the again, the prowess of the Packers offense. And again, like Adam Lazard was a key contributor. Devontae Adams and Adam and uh yeah, Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones, excuse me. They both had solid games. Aaron Jones had 99 yards and a touchdown. And Devontae Adams was mostly shadowed by Jalen Ramsey. And that's where you have Rodgers has, has weapons behind Adams and Jones that he can re- rely on if they're going to take out like a Devontae Adams in, the, in this game. And, you know, the Rams were battered. They had no Cooper Cup. Goff was playing with a thumb injury. Um, Cam Makers was really an encouraging sign if you're a Los Angeles fan. You know, 90 yards and a touchdown. He was hurt most of the year. You see him perform well on the big stage. So possible, you know, bright spot for the Rams future. But overall, Aaron Rodgers, you know, potential MVP candidate. He looked as sharp as ever. Now changing gears towards the last game of the night, the Bills and the Ravens. Uh, Starting with you, Joel, what were your thoughts on just a really interesting game from both sides? The Bills defense stepped up. The Ravens were one of the hottest teams coming into the playoffs. They were averaging about 200 yards rushing per game. 
and the Bills had held them to 150. If any other team rushes for 150 yards, that's a success. But for the Ravens, that's not. Because if you were watching the game, it felt like their run game was at a stalemate throughout the game. I felt like the best part of the Ravens' offense yesterday was their passing game. Then obviously Lamar Jackson gets hurt, and Tyler Huntley comes in. He misses that throw to Marquise Brown. I feel like that would have changed the dimension of the game, but since he missed that, it totally diminished all of their momentum. Their center is horrible, horrible. He was a bunch of horrible sacks. The reason why Lamar Jackson got injured in the first place, to me, this game was about the Bills shutting down the Ravens' offensive game plan, their run game, what they do best, and also Josh Allen stepping up, Stephon Diggs stepping up. I talked about third downs with Adam Lazard. Stephon Diggs was the same way. He showed up whenever you needed him to show up. Yeah, I was um, I was super surprised about how low scoring the game was. I was expecting, you know, Josh Allen and um, Lamar Jackson to put on a show. But I think the the obviously the biggest play of the game was the hundred yard pick six at the towards the at the end of the third quarter because Baltimore they were down 10-3 inside the ten about to tie it up would would have set up for great fourth quarter and. After that, uh, obviously, Buffalo takes it back, makes it 17-3, and then next series, um, Lamar gets hurt, and it was kind of all downhill from there. But just Buffalo, I, I expected them to win that game, but it was it was interesting because Josh – I mean, the off Buffalo offense only put up 10 points on their side. They're going to need to play a lot better next week in the AFC title game, assuming it's against Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs. Yeah, again, uh, last night, the only offensive touchdown was an Allen to Dick screen pass in the red zone. Um, not too worried about their offense. We know the Ravens have a good defense. And that, that pick six by Teron Johnson, 101 yards. Um, for me, that kind of reminded me of you know, a long time ago, back in like the 28th season. You guys know I'm a Steelers fan. The James Harden, yeah. no, excuse me, James Harrison, uh, interception return for a touchdown before the, the half against the Cardinals and how electrifying that was. And because there were fans yesterday, you could just see like the, the Bills Mafia were out, you know, in, in bunches, you know, because they haven't been to, to, the, to the playoffs in so long and finally making noise with their young quarterback, um, all their weapons and everything. But we saw, you know, Lamar getting hurt was definitely a storyline during the game and just not being at, you know, seeing him at full potential like we've seen throughout the season. And again, the, another problem in the first half was the Bills only ran twice and they just kept relying on Josh Allen's arm and the Ravens shut him down. And you saw at halftime, they made adjustments. And then coming out in the second half, you know, Allen started throwing, uh, started running the ball in addition to throwing, you know, really setting up the pass. But overall, it was, you know, it was a great game. The Bills are in their first AFC championship since 1994. So, you know, it's just awesome for, for Buffalo. And we can only see, again, if it's going to be, uh, depending on the, the matchup for today. And right now we have the uh, Browns and the Chiefs going on. Um, right now the, the Chiefs are currently winning, as expected. But uh, starting with you, Michael, uh, what are some of your takeaways from this game and what should we, be, should we expect? From uh, the Browns-Chiefs game? Yes. Yeah, I, was, uh, I watched the whole first half, and uh, Cleveland was hanging in there tough. I don't know if you saw they had – the uh, fumble, it was Rashard Higgins. He caught it and dove out, was almost like a yard away from being a touchdown, but he got hit and it was a touchback. So that was huge play in the game. And then Kansas City went down, drove, got a field goal. And right now uh, Cleveland's driving. They're only down 12. They're at the 33. I'm 
I like um like this uh, the underdog, the surprise story. So I want the Browns to win, but I'm expecting uh the Chiefs to take care of this one. I think the Browns are holding their own so far. There have been a lot of times where Chiefs could have scored a touchdown and their defense has held them to three points. Obviously, Michael, you mentioned the fumble by Rashard Higgins. Yeah. Daniel Sorensen knocked it out. That would have put the game really close going into halftime. But because he fumbled, it was a touchback, and the Chiefs got a field goal off of that. But right now, the Browns are showing a lot of fight. They won't win this game, at least I don't think so. But they're putting everybody on notice that they're going to be here for a while. Yeah, and you have to – Baker Mayfield deserves a lot of credit for – all like the scrutiny that Haiti got in the offseason to come out, have the regular season he did, and to win a huge playoff game last week in Pittsburgh. God, uh, he deserves a lot of respect, I would say. Yeah, Baker Mayfield is arguably playing the best football of, of his career. You know, last week against the Steelers, 260 yards and three touchdowns. And again, a key to coming into this game was limiting, obviously, Patrick Mahomes, you know, the best quarterback on the planet, and just putting pressure on him. And right now, Mahomes actually got hurt earlier in the game. He's been kind of like a little bit limping. It's not anything crazy, but they're putting up a really good fight. And that uh, Rashad Higgins uh, touchback play, that was helmet to helmet, in my opinion. I think they should have, you know, maybe overturned that in some way. I just think like it was so clear that Sorensen went, leaned in with the crown of his helmet, but I'm sure there'll be much controversy about that in the next coming days. And again, at the time of this recording, the Chiefs were up 22 to 10. Um, but we'll see what happens, you know, with about 13 minutes left in the fourth quarter. But the last game of the divisional round is, uh, is arguably the game of the weekend. We have round three of Drew Brees versus Tom Brady. Drew Brees had Brady's number twice this season. The Saints defeated him twice. And the Saints are coming off a 21-9 win against the Bears. And the Bucks are coming off a 31-23 win against the Washington football team who played them tough. So we'll start with you, Joel. What do you expect from tonight's game? I expect Tom Brady to get the better of Drew Brees and go to the NFC Championship and face Aaron Rodgers. I don't expect anything less. Everybody's going to talk about the two games. That's fine. When they faced the Saints, the Bucs were not clicking yet. They started clicking after the bye week. That's when they started clicking. The second time they faced them, A.B. had just joined the team. Now he's been implemented in this offense. Donovan Smith is playing better. He held his own against Chase Young. I think he'll I think he'll do much better against Trey Hendrickson and Cameron Jordan this game. For me, we know who the Saints are. They're great in the regular season, but they choke in the playoffs. That's been what they have been the past couple of years. Tom Brady's not that. Tom Brady this year on a mission to prove everybody wrong. They said he couldn't throw the deep ball. He has the most deep passing touchdowns this season. Tom Brady has been phenomenal throwing the ball and airing the ball out. Whenever he's been doubted, he's risen to the occasion. Everybody's counting out the Bucs now, but I'm telling you, they're going to get payback, and the Bucs are going to turn everybody into believers the same way that Jehovah Witnesses hope they turn people as well. Yeah, and as much as I want to make uh, the show interesting and pick the other side and say the Saints are going to win, I got to agree with Joel because – I and the Saints, they were very impressive last week. Their defense completely shut down Chicago, even though Chicago's not, they were an eight and eight football team and their offense isn't that great. But New Orleans is still impressive and they're at home in the Superdome, which they always play well in. It's also most likely Drew Brees' last season. So this could potentially be his last game. But I just think Tom Brady has 
better he had the Bucks have a better offense, better weapons. And Tom Brady has obviously the track record, six Super Bowls compared to Drew Brees's single Super Bowl. And he Brady just gets the job done in the playoffs. And I I could easily see the Bucks going on winning this game and going all the way winning the Super Bowl. I, it wouldn't surprise me, I should say. You know, just such an intriguing matchup. When we found out earlier this year that Tom Brady was going to go to Tampa Bay, we knew that, that he was going to match up against Drew Brees at least twice during the regular season. And now it's just another gift uh, in such a big game, the divisional round. But coming into today, I was kind of torn just because the Saints have been playing so well and now everyone's healthy. Michael Thomas is back and everything, and they are at home. But two key injuries, which they might not be the biggest headlines. It's not like an Alvin Kamara or even a Drew Brees, but Taysom Hill's not playing tonight. And he is such an, an important part of their offense that Sean Payne uses like almost every down, whether it's playing quarterback, running back, receiver, the guy literally does everything. And even though it's not, again, like the biggest name on the offensive end, that's still something that could maybe limit the offensive firepower of the Saints. You know, they have the big three again of Kamara, Thomas, and Brees. But, and they're also missing Latavius Murray, uh, Alvin Kamara's uh, backup. And sometimes, like, they'll split the run game between those two. And Kamara's going to take the heavy load tonight anyway. But you heard it here first. We have a couple of uh, opinions agreeing that the Bucs will win tonight. And even though the Saints are the favorites being at home and having, you know, an impressive season, the Bucs are playing their best football right now when it matters the most. So, guys, if you had to place any bet on any team remaining uh, to win the Super Bowl, who would it be and why? For me, it would be the Buffalo Bills. I think they're the hottest team in the NFL. Josh Allen's playing phenomenal. That defense, when Matt, when Matt Milano has been healthy, that defense has been one of the best in the league. They're clicking at the right time, so I'd bet on them. Yeah, this is a tough one because I think really anybody left has a very, very legitimate chance and could easily win the Super Bowl. If I had to put my money on one team, I would go with the Tampa Bay Bucks and trust Tom Brady and his offense with Mike Evans, A.B., Gronk, to get the job done. Uh, definitely two great choices. I'm really glad no one said the Chiefs, which obviously is the most common answer, and I'm glad that we're actually going to have all three uh, different choices. I'm My pick is going to be the Green Bay Packers, um, not just based off last night, but just the way Aaron Rodgers has been all season long. Um, they're just, again, the offensive uh, dynamo that they are. They're such a complete team offensively and defensively. And my wish, which I think for a lot of fans, if we see a potential Aaron Rodgers versus Mahomes in the Super Bowl, if we see, let's say, the Chiefs knock off the Packers, for example, and obviously Mahomes has won a Super Bowl already against the 49ers, but I would see that as the official passing of the torch from the older quarterback generation to the officially the new. And we've seen this season that like the ageless wonders of Tom Brady, uh, Drew Brees, Rodgers, even though Rodgers isn't as old as them, they're still playing unbelievable and unreal at such a late stage in their career. And we're seeing all these new quarterbacks who are the next crop, the Justin Herberts, uh, a little later on, late, like Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. I think that'd be an amazing storyline if the Packers would meet the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. And again, regardless of who wins, like the passing of the torch, um, because Rodgers has been so dominant for so long, him and Brady. Um, again, it would be the same thing even if Tom Brady made it to the Super Bowl and played Patrick Mahomes along that same line. But I just think, in my opinion, if I had to place money, a place a bet, I would think it's the Packers, but all three of our teams could easily do that. And again, the Chiefs, who have just been so dominant, and I think they're going to beat the Browns right now. So I can only wait and see. That was a – I really liked your point about, like, the quarterbacks because it's kind of like 
for our generation, like being teenagers, uh, about to be like 20, that age range, those are like the quarterbacks we grew up on, like Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, even like Philip Rivers, Eli Manning, guys like that. Now you see all these young guys coming in. And back to the, the Browns just scored a touchdown, and Mahomes is out of the game, by the way. Just saw that. Is he, is he I, I thought I read, is it concussion protocol? Yeah. That, okay, that's very interesting. Okay, so maybe we yeah. might have a little bit there, but who knows? Again, Baker Mayfield is playing his best football yeah. of his career. There's still a lot of time left. All right, very interesting. So we're going to definitely monitor that, and hopefully by the end of this taping, we'll have a final score uh, for you, our viewers. Uh, so lastly, in the NFL, we have one more big storyline I want to dive into. Uh, this past week, we found out the hiring of brand-new coaches for the two worst teams in the NFL, and now the best draft picks in next year's draft. Urban Meyer going to the Jacksonville Jaguars and Robert Sala going to the New York Jets. Starting with you, Joel, which team do you think is in the best position to succeed next season with the new coaching changes? The Jacksonville Jaguars, no doubt about it. They're going to probably draft Trevor Lawrence. They'd be crazy not to draft Trevor Lawrence. Urban Meyer is going to put together a great coaching staff. The Jaguars have the most cap space in the NFL, and they have a plethora of picks not only this year, but the following years as well. And people are overlooking this fact. Urban Meyer is coming from college. Yes, he will work as an analyst, but he's, he's familiar with the college scene right now. When Pete Carroll first came into the NFL from college, his first couple of drafts were awesome. He drafted Bobby Wagner, Russell Wilson, and Richard Sherman in the same draft. Late rounds, too, because he realized he recognized the talent he was in the college scene. Urban Meyer being in the college scene, he's these first couple of drafts are going to be awesome. The Jaguars are going to pick up a lot of great players, and because of that, they're in the best position to succeed. Yeah, I would uh, before I say like best position is to succeed. I would say both teams like made great hires. The Jaguars with Urban Meyer and the Jets with Salah, but the obviously the Jaguars are in a much better position to start winning some football games. The Jets are still, they got a lot of rebuilding to do, but going back to Urban Meyer, his college record was 187 and 32. He's only one of a, a very short list of college coaches to win national titles at two different schools at Florida and Ohio state. And he was really just the perfect guy for the job in Jacksonville. And they're only the Jaguars. What was it? Three years ago, we're in that AFC title game three, four years ago. So that, I mean, they still have some pieces and obviously the biggest piece that it's going to be is the number one pick with Trevor Lawrence, who's everyone believes is going to be a phenomenal quarterback and franchise star in the NFL. Yeah. Obviously there's some trepidation when you think about a college coach going to the pros because of some examples in the past, but I like Joel, your Pete Carroll example. And this year in the draft, the Jaguars have 11 total picks, I believe multiple first rounders. And, you know, Urban Meyer has shown his, his success um, with a great record, a couple of national championships, you know, lastly at Ohio State. And again, with the Jaguars, they're going to have the consensus number one pick, Trevor Lawrence. Uh, just based off the team last year, before even adding this new wave of draft picks, you had James Robinson, the undrafted rookie. He was the stud last year. He had like 10 total touchdowns. You got DJ Shark, a good receiver. You know, just some decent, some decent players as supporting cash right before the draft, which I think is a good position. But just going to the Jets for a second, 
obviously they're not in a better, a better position than the Jaguars, you know, with the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes, Urban Meyer, we think is going to be a great coach in the NFL. We've seen with Robert Sala and the 49ers. This is a team that was in this, was in the Super Bowl, you know, last year and it's against the Kansas city chiefs. He transformed the 49ers defense from last to a top five unit. And obviously this year was a little bit different. They had a down year. I'm talking about the last couple of years. Um, the Jets still have two first round picks. They have the number two pick. We could debate all day about what that's going to be. Is it going to be Justin Fields? Is it going to be um, just some other weapon that Donald can use? Are they going to stick with Sam Donald? Um, there's just so much to talk about with them. But we've seen success on the, the pro level as a defensive coordinator in Robert Sala. And he's brought just this energy to San Francisco. I believe he's going to bring it to New York. And again, it's just a, a matter of the transitioning between college and the pros for Urban Meyer and Robert Sala already being in the pros. But again, two good situations now, um, two great coaching hires. And again, the draft is going to be big for both these teams this year. So it'll be definitely exciting to watch this upcoming season. Hopefully the teams will not finish the last two again uh, this upcoming NFL season. So before we talk about the last sport in our episode, we have to break down a new MLB headline that just happened this week. So again, the New York baseball sportsman has been dominating the whole offseason. But this week, the Yankees finally resigned the most important member of their team last year, DJ, DJ LeMahieu, and also went out and brought in former Indians ace Corey Kluber. Last week, we saw the Mets begin the Steve Cohen era by bringing in two other huge former Indians, Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. We're certainly going to have a pretty exciting Subway Series this year. So, guys, I want you to give your opinion about who you think is having a better offseason and who do you think is going to be more successful this upcoming season. I think the better offseason is is the Mets. They have made more moves or more notable moves. Lindor is one of the best shortstops in the MLB, so getting him was huge. They also got a, a May from a reliever, May from the Twins. So he's going to be pretty good for their bullpen, and that's what they struggle with the most. The Mets had a better offseason, but I do think the Yankees still have the edge, and I think they'll be better this year just because the team has been together longer. And the, the Yankees already have so much talent. And I don't think, even though the Mets have acquired more talent, I don't think they're on the level of the Yankees just yet. Yeah, um, 100% agree. The Mets, obviously, they made the big headlines, the big stories, because every offseason, the Yankees usually get a big name, big acquisition. And for the Mets, like, you never really, when's the last time the Mets made a move like this? So great way to start off the Steve Cohen era. Francisco Lindor is one of the best players in baseball. Carrasco is a very solid pitcher. But as Joel said, the, the Mets last year were a below average baseball team. The Yankees have a lot of talent. They've been a couple of games away from potentially making the World Series the past few years. So I would I agree that the Yankees still probably a better team. They just have more talent. Yeah, so again, last week, beginning the Steve Cohen era, just with a bang, going out and getting one of the best shortstops in the game in Francisco Lindor. But coming to this offseason for the Yankees, you know they have the talent, but the biggest goal that they had to that they had to complete, and if they didn't do this, they, I think this season would have been like not even close to becoming a World Series potential one, was bringing back LeMahieu, you know, the AL batting champ. He's such an important part of this Yankees team. And just getting him was just huge. It took so long for some reason. You know, they ended up signing him to a six-year, $90 million deal. Um, but he was the most important part of this team for the last couple of years. So I'm really glad the Yankees were able to bring him back. And going after Kluber on a one-year deal. Again, Kluber, he's with, he was the 2014 and 2017 Cy Young Award winner. 
He was last with the Rangers before he tore a muscle in his right shoulder. He has a career ERA of the 3.16. He's, I think he's a great pickup for the Yankees. You know, put him alongside a Jared Cole and, you know, Debbie Garcia and like this, this bullpen, uh, excuse me, this rotation that they're still trying to formulate. Just, I think it was just a great couple moves by Brian Cashman and the Yankees. And again, with the Mets, just a huge trade and showing that he, he's not going to be like a penny pincher, so to say. Steve Cohen, he's going to go after and make the fans happy and, you know, get the city going and try to c- compete with the Yankees for the best team in New York. So just a quick follow-up question. There's still rumors that both teams could make one more move each. With the Mets, you got the George Springer rumors have been going on for weeks, and the Yankees going after you know, another starter in Luis Castillo. There's still talks about it. So in your guys' opinion, do you think either team should make another move for the remainder of this offseason? I think uh, the Mets, if they want to be like a true contender, they're going to need another bat. I mean, they have Pete Alonso, he's him and Lindor. That's their dynamic duo, their best two players. But Conforto never kind of really reached his full potential. He, he's never been as good as the Mets thought he was going to be. Obviously, their their pitching's always been pretty good. But I think the Mets, whether it's in the offseason or maybe in the middle of the season at the trade deadline, they're going to need, need to get another bat, whether it's a young guy or a veteran, to help out the lineup if they want to be like make or make the playoffs and go far into October. Yeah, I agree. I think the Yankees right now, they have all the pieces. They just have to click and put it all together and go on that magical run for the Mets. I think there's still a few pieces away, so they have to make more moves. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what both teams will do their main offseason. Will Steve Cohen continue to go after these huge names that for many years Mets fans always felt like, no, we're never going to get any of these star players. They don't really love spending a lot of money. But finally, with the, with the new new ownership, just a new culture just established with the Mets, it's going to be a great Subway series this year. It's going to be really interesting to see what both teams will do. Again, the remainder of this offseason before next season starts. So to finish things off for the episode, let's turn to another exciting sport that began last Wednesday, the NHL. This year is certainly different than any other season in recent history because of the shortened 56-game schedule and now new realigned divisions based off the COVID-19 protocols. As we've seen, there's the East, Central, West, and All-Canadian North Division, with each field just with storylines and superstars and just overall exciting matchups all year long. Because each team has to play each other like eight to ten times. So kicking it back to you guys, which division intrigues you the most this season and why? I would say, first off, I'm not a – by no means I'm not a hockey expert. Um, I consider myself a Devils fan, but I really don't follow the NHL too much. So with that being said, I would say the East division, just because it's like it's all the teams around us. The Bruins are always a contender. They've won a bunch of Stanley Cups in the past decade. Uh, you got the Rangers, the Islanders, like all the New York teams trying to make some noise. So I'll, I'll go with the East as the uh, most intriguing. And did you guys see they have – there's like sponsors now for all the uh, divisions? First time like any sports doing that. It's a pretty interesting. Yeah, like on their on their uniforms or like uh, like their jerseys every game, they have like a sponsor. Yeah. For, and even the divisions themselves are there's like the Honda, I believe, yeah. the division, Scotia Bank. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. You know, yeah. it's definitely this season is so uh, is so unusual by by any means for the NHL. Just overall, and just want to hear from you, Joel. What division do you think is going to be the most intriguing to watch the rest of the season? So I think it's the same for me. The East, they have the most forty-win teams inside that division. I believe they have four or five forty-win teams in that division. 
No other division has more than two. Five of the top 11 teams are in the Eastern Division. So because of that, I think they are the most intriguing division and will be the most competitive division this year. Uh, I have to agree with both of you guys. I'm not just saying that as a biased Rangers fan. The East Division is just absolutely loaded. There's just so many stars. And again, like I love that statistic you brought up, Joel, about the 41 teams. Um, there's rivalries just across the board. Some of the greatest hockey, some of the greatest rivalries, not just in hockey, but in all sports. You got the Rangers and Islanders. You got the Flyers and Penguins, you know, the Battle of Pennsylvania and just the superstars. For example, uh, when we recorded this today, the Penguins just to be the Capitals uh, four to three. You got Sidney Crosby, and Alexander Ovechkin playing against each other eight to ten times a season. Like you can't make that up. It's going to be so entertaining to watch. There's so many playoff teams. But again, I think all the divisions are going to be interesting in their own way. There's just so many storylines. But I also think that the all-Canadian North Division is definitely something to look out for as well. you got the Battle of Alberta. But just the superstars, you got Connor McDavid, who's, again, arguably the best player on the planet, you know, playing in Edmonton. You have just so much talent up there. And there's so many rivalry games, like the Maple Leafs and the Senators, and you got the, the Flames and the Oilers. There's just so much going on up there. And again, it's just going to be an interesting season regardless. And you're going to be playing the same people, you know, eight, eight, 10 times for the entire 56 games. So how, you're going are to have the, to... um, how are the playoffs? Like how's the playoffs working? I know eight, 16 teams, like eight and eight, but is it still like East and West or. I'm not entirely sure. I think you can't like. I was trying to find it, figure it out before, but I like, I, don't, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> based off like my prior my prior knowledge, I believe they're kind of going to combine it, I think, between two divisions, two divisions. I have to yeah. double check. But, for example, I'm pretty sure the team from the East Division, if they made it to the Stanley Cup, wouldn't play a, a team from the North, I think, for a while. But, again, I could be wrong. But regardless. And it's all, it's all like the whole division, it's just for this one year? Yeah, it's just to avoid the travel because we've seen with other sports, like especially with the NBA, which could have been a topic today. Again, COVID, uh, the, the COVID protocols are just canceling a whole bunch of games. Um, we just watched the Knicks today beat up the Celtics by 30 points. And Jason Tatum, again, didn't play because of COVID-19. But I think the NHL is doing a good thing by having the divisions for at least for this season. And we'll see if next year, if it goes back to normal, I think it will. But overall, just a lot to look out for. So my last question today, uh, we've been talking about, again, teams in each, uh, especially from the East Division, but just overall, if you had to place a bet for – a team to go on a Stanley cup final run, who would you pick? So let's start with you, Joel. So for me in the West, I got the Colorado avalanche and in the East, I have the flyers making it. I got the uh, Vegas golden Knights and the penguins like Crosby, get another one. Crosby get another cup. Um, I agree with you, Joel. I think overall the team that has the best shot is the Colorado avalanche in the West. They're just so complete from top to bottom, you know, from offensively, defensively, their goaltending. Um, you got, again, Nathan McKinnon, who you can argue with Connor McDavid is the greatest player, you know, in the world right now. They had some big additions. They added Devon, uh, Devon Taves from the Islanders, Brandon Sod from the Blackhawks, just building up their their forward core that's already loaded with the Miko Rantanins and the uh, Gabriel Landeskogs. And then a young blue line studding Kale McCarr. They're really just, just stacked across the board. I think they could have made it farther last year if it wasn't for, you know, the hot stars team. And in the East for me, I think it's just going to be a team from the, either the East division or even like the Tampa Bay lightning. Um, even though they've lost Nikita Kucherov for the season, 
they still have, you know, Steven Stamkos, Braden Point, uh, a good, you know, probably the best defenseman in the league in Victor Hedman, that's arguably, and arguably the best goalie in the league in Andre Vasilevsky. So there's just so many different options, like just the year for the cup. It's really wide open, which I think is another great thing about the NHL because every year it just seems like it's just so wide open. You know, a couple of years ago, we saw the St. Louis Blues, um, you know, go on a Stanley Cup run, you know, after really struggling for half a season, half of a season. So just be interesting to see what happens in this, again, just extraordinary circumstance season this year. So again, there's just a lot to look forward to in all the sport four sports we talked about today. So that'll do it for this edition of Vexes and Opinions. Again, I'm Jonathan Height, and I want to thank my awesome analysts, Joel Moran and Michael Leniart, for their time today and for your expert insight. Please check out WSOU Sports on all of our social media platforms with the handle at WSOU Sports. We will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in.